Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today live as part of our Road to Recovery series at BMO. Today's discussion is focused on the acceleration of the recovery. In North America, economies are tracking toward a robust recovery, and we are moving forward with renewed confidence and optimism for the future. We have widespread vaccination, the reopening of restaurants, hotels, and entertainment, the resumption of travel. I myself was in Vancouver this weekend, but there are some potential clouds. The Canadian economic outlook remains highly dependent on the pace of vaccinations and the uncertainty about the variants. Monetary and fiscal stimulus are expected to provide ongoing support to the economy, while households are expected to ramp up spending as restrictions are lifted and boosted by sizable accumulated savings. The U.S. has weathered the pandemic better than most advanced countries, and the U.S. economy could grow at the fastest rate in nearly four decades. From a global market standpoint, we're seeing some of the strongest, most robust activity in mergers and acquisitions, sustainable finance, debt capital markets, and equities. There's no doubt the world will continue to evolve and global development will advance in different sectors with different focuses than pre-pandemic. Today's discussion tracks closely to the reopening of the US-Canada border, a symbolic event that speaks to the economies of both countries that goes beyond imports and exports and cross-border trade. For today's LinkedIn Live event, we've gathered some of our leading experts to take a bit of a deep dive in what the reopening means for the economic future of both countries and for the world. Our guests for today are Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, Margaret Cairns, Head of Fixed Strategy, and Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist. So, how close are we to the new normal? Uh, my first question, let's talk about uh, the future growth forecasts and outlook. Why don't we start by establishing our expectations for the economic rebound in the United States, in Canada, and more generally the world. Michael, why don't we start with you? Sure thing. Well, well thanks, Dan. Well, we're looking for uh, real GDP growth to be 6.5% this year in the United States, 6% in Canada, roughly 6% in the global economy, and uh, both Canada and the United States to grow around 4%, 4.5% for next year. Uh, we do think that the uh, spring and summer will reflect the high watermark for, uh, for economic <clears throat> performance, uh, and things will probably slow a little bit from this very strong activity we're going to see during that period. Well, why? Well, because we know that uh, uh, some of the pandemic relief measures are going to end. Uh, some of the pent-up demand is going to get satiated, and uh, you know, and higher inflation, in fact, is, is is eroding purchasing power. So, so we do think that you know growth is going to be a little bit slower as the rest of the year unfolds and into next year. But the key thing: growth rates are still bearing very strong historically and well above potential. And you and you alluded to some of the points why that's going to be the case. Fiscal policy is still positive for growth. Uh, even in the United States, we're kind of working through that uh, bipartisan infrastructure. <clears throat> uh, and in Canada, you know, with the, re the recent federal budget had a uh, hundred billion dollars uh, of new stimulus. 
uh, although you know the Bank of Canada has started to rein in its QE with, with tapering, and the Fed will probably be there in the not too distant future. Uh, both central banks' uh, monetary policy is still uh, net accommodative. But perhaps the greatest, I think, support for the economy going forward is the fact that you, you mentioned Dan those savings. Well, you know, we have a lot of liquidity, uh, gobs of it, in fact, that sort of parked in deposit accounts on both sides of the border. And you compare it to where the pre-pandemic trend was, <clears> and you get the latest figures from May, you're looking at around $3.4 trillion of, of, of those deposits. That's uh, slightly more than uh, 15% of GDP. That's in the United States. And of course, in Canada, we roughly have around $250 billion of those mostly uh, deposits. And uh, and then that comes in around more than 10% of GDP. And, and, and that's this money that's sitting there waiting. It's itching to be uh, spent and invested. Now, it's true that, that you know, the risks presented by uh, the rising uh, uh, COVID cases and the variants are, are, are problematic. But Canada and United States are both highly vaccinated countries. We doubt we'll see an increase uh, in, in a significant, an incident, uh, a major increase in restrictions. Uh, and, and the bottom line is we think growth is going to be very strong. Michael, that's great. Uh, I love the deposits and, uh, and where we're going to go with that. Uh, Margaret, why don't we go to you? Um, where are we at with yields in the marketplace and why are they trending lower? And how will the monetary policy that Michael talked about shape or plan to rebound? Uh, a lot of the audience will be curious about when the Fed will start to raise rates and what will the impact be for bonds versus equities uh, as we think about this period of cheap money. Sure. Thanks, Dan. That, those are some of the biggest questions that we've been fielding over the past couple of weeks. Of course, 10-year yields are <coughs> points lower since their recent highs of March. And it's really because of two things. The first is the extension in the pandemic timeline with the Delta variant surging uh, in a variety of places uh, throughout the world, and especially places that um, might not have the same vaccination rates as we do here in North America. So the market is basically pricing this extended pandemic timeline. The second big mover in 10-year yields in particular has been that um, the Fed has been changed. The, the market's pricing of the Fed has changed. Um, basically, um, it shifted from <clears throat> a market expected the Fed to be behind the inflation curve to a Fed that is now discussing tapering. So the market's actually kind of looking past tapering and looking to the time frame when they actually will increase interest rates. And that's really the next leg of the accommodation removal. So basically what happened is the market realized that the Fed will not sacrifice their inflation objective um, in order to meet the employment objective. In terms of taper timeline, as Michael mentioned, we do expect tapering to occur later this year or early next year. This is a patient Fed. They really do want to closely watch the impact of tapering on the markets and on the economy. They will message, as they have in the past, that tapering is not on a preset course, and they'll maintain the flexibility to change course if needed. Tapering should conclude in 2022, and rate hikes should follow sometime in 2023. However, as we all know, a two-year forecast horizon is quite some time away, and many things can change during that time. But what I do know is that this is a patient Fed. They will watch the evolution of the data, and they will want to see how the economy looks as they remove some of the extraordinary accommodation. Now, one thing that, that I would note is 
you know, Michael also mentioned this, that while there are tape, while they are tapering, they will still be extraordinarily accommodated, buying hundreds of billions in the first um, you know, couple of months of the tapering, and, and rates will still be at the zero bound. Yeah, so yeah, it's been fun to watch the markets in the last few weeks uh, as they uh, react to the current news. Brian, uh, you've got a very strong view uh, on the bullishness of equity markets. We're in the 11th year of a bull run. Are you still bullish? Well, thanks, Dan, for having us. And great first question uh, for us. And hello, everyone on LinkedIn. Yes, the, the quick answer is yes. You know, our 20 to 25 year bull market call originated in 2009, 2010, the second half of the bull market we've been clear about started on uh, March 23rd of 2020 last year as the market kind of reset. We also have recently upped our forecast for 2021 uh, for a price target of 4,500 and earnings target of 190 on the S&P 500 and 20,500 in, in earnings of 1180 on the S&P TSX, principally because we continue to have faith in fundamentals and that puts us overweight in both countries, by the way, financials, consumer discretionary materials and industrials over the next three to five years, if anybody can make a three to five year call, we sure try to. Our favorite sectors are technology, communication services, um, and discretionary. Now, that's point number one. Point number two would be the market is transitioning, Dan. We've been so momentum-driven really since 2018, and we see as earnings continue to go up uh, that the market is returning more to a fundamentally driven, more earnings-driven market. And I think that's very good and builds credibility for both countries in terms of Canada and the United States, which brings me to point number three, and I think this is really important, Dan, that the stock market is a market of stocks. And I believe that too much focus has been on macro and quantitative measures the last 20 years in terms of investing and building portfolios. We've kind of taken our eye off the ball with respect to how to pick companies, how to look at operating performance, what balance sheets mean, what services mean, what cash flow means. And we continue to believe that uh, as Margaret and Michael set the table with respect of accommodative stimulus, uh, what are we doing with that money? And with that money, we're buying the best assets in the world. And I think the best assets in the world are U.S. and Canadian equities. And so I believe that stock picking and bottoms up investing with respect to portfolios uh, and uh, overall active investing is going to be a theme for the next 10 years. And that's why it's going to be so important to have great fundamental research and really stick with your process and your discipline. What I love is you're a bull forever. <laughs> oh, we'll be uh, married at the right you... time, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reminder to the audience, this is LinkedIn Live. We'd love to get some questions for you for our panelists. Um, one of the hot topics uh, in the last few weeks has been around inflation. And are we headed into a big up cycle uh, in terms of uh, renewed inflation? Or is it really temporary as we come out of the pandemic? Um, Michael, perhaps first with you, how do you feel about inflation? What do you think you're looking for? And what do you think the impact is going to be on economic recovery? Thanks, Dan. Well, let's face it. We, we know why we've seen some shockingly high inflation rates on both sides of the border very recently. Uh, we, we know the narrative around that uh, base effects. Uh, uh, all the reopenings has caused a rapid return to pre-pandemic pricing. And, and these things are temporary. The one that seems to have little bit potentially more longevity is the fact we've got these supply bottlenecks that are, are, are occurring alongside still very robust demand. Now, historically, these kind of 
demand and supply shocks tend to peter out among themselves. Uh, uh, eventually, demand gets satiated and higher inflation itself, it, it tends to be a drag on, on spending. Meanwhile, you know, these, these, these bottlenecks get uh, remedied, you know, uh, you know, the, the canals eventually open again. And and uh, we, we uh, and the higher prices themselves, tend, in some cases, signal more supply. So these things tend to kind of right themselves. So we're not looking for a, a, a persistent inflation problem, particularly if we don't have the sort of the compensating wage gains, which kind of kind of uh, uh, propagate that. There are there are some pockets of wage inflation, but not something on a broad base uh, nature across the uh, both economies. Uh, that said, you know, I mentioned earlier about uh, lots of liquidity kind of sitting around or parked mostly in, in bank deposits. And we happen to think that that could act as a little bit of a driver of more persistent spending and the ability of consumers and businesses to keep paying higher prices for a little bit longer. And we all know, uh, and as Margaret mentioned, you know, a lot of the countries around the world don't have the kind of vaccination rates we have in, North, uh, in, in Canada and the United States. And as a result, that supply response as we go through this fourth wave or we go through you know, the, the variants uh, in those countries, it may limit the ability of them to 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 uh, you know remedy the supply shortages. So the, the bottom line is is I do think when the dust settles, we're probably going to have a little higher run rate for inflation than we did before. We think on both sides of the border, we're looking around two and a quarter, the two and a half percent range uh, for core inflation, which is you know, meaningfully higher than we had before. But quite frankly, exactly what the central banks are looking for. Uh, you know, they're a little more willing. The Fed's official target is to have inflation modest, moderately above 2% for a while. And the Bank of Canada has been emphasizing its 1% to 3% range rather than its 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 point uh, its 2% midpoint. So I do think we're, we're going to get the kind of inflation rates that we settle down to that is exactly what the central banks want to see and, quite frankly, sets the stage for rate hikes. Now, if we do uh, get uh, inflation running persistently higher for longer, that could, in fact, get the central banks to act a little more quickly, which, again, through the higher inflation itself by eroding purchasing power or those rate hikes coming a little bit sooner, perhaps a bit more aggressively, that could, in fact, you know, undermine uh, the recovery somewhat. But that's not our base case. We do, we do think that uh, you know, the inflation environment still looks quite benign. And Margaret, how's that translating then into how the markets or how our clients are thinking about uh, you know, bond yields and how they're investing today? Sure. Thanks, Dan. You know, as we know, the market's pricing in and out the reflation trade, and that's been impacting yields. The main factor really to watch is not what the market thinks of inflation, but how the Fed is characterizing inflation. And the Fed continues to characterize inflation as transitory, and the market is pricing to that. So if we were to see the Fed move away from that characterization of inflation is transitory. That's where we're going to get uh, you know, the big market moves. Um, and then the market pricing really will depend on why the Fed has changed their character characterization. If it's because growth is strong, uh, the long end will react a little differently than if it's because uh, they have persistent inflation and a slow growth and slow employment recovery type of environment. Either way, um, the front end takes off. Uh, with the front end moving higher and the yield curve flattens. Just the degree of flattening really depends on why the Fed has changed their characterization. However, this is not today's story. Um, the Fed remains focused on supporting a solid and sustainable economic recovery, and we still have a long way to go with the job market. So it, we really just need, uh, simply this needs to play out over time. And Brian, 
uh, you believe inflation is uh, is not here to stay. I think you've been writing about that recently. What do you think that the implications are for your investing strategy? Well, the inflation call that Michael and Margaret are, are making is, is pretty much on, on board with, with, with respect to what we're seeing come from a longer term perspective. But what, as Margaret points out, uh, we're dealing with what the inflation numbers are telling us today. And, and I think the major point should be uh, I continue to believe that Mr. Powell is the smartest person in the room and we don't need to outsmart him. So if he's saying that it's transitory, it's transitory. And so I take a look at how earnings, Dan, continue to go up. Fundamentals from companies continue to improve. And in an environment with double-digit earnings growth and low interest rates, remember we did some of these calls in the first quarter and we thought rates were going to 2%. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to 2%. We're down around one, in the 120s now. And so I think we're going to be at these levels uh, with respect to valuations coming back in as earnings increase. And again, it's an exemplary opportunity for stocks. And lastly, I would say this, uh, for longer term investors looking for yield, I think the theme of cash distributions in the, in the form of dividends and dividend growth fits perfectly with the North American markets, especially given Canada's historical lineage to the UK and how Canadian companies have done a great job managing their cash and paying dividends and payout ratios in the U.S., are still at or near all-time lows historically, and they're increasing, though, in uh, fascinating areas like technology, uh, healthcare, but especially financial. So I think there's a real opportunity from the equity income side of things as, as long as rates remain low. Remember, Dan, uh, since the great financial crisis, the average 10-year treasury is at about 210 basis points. And so we're still way below that, and the average 10-year treasury over the last 60 years is 5%. So we've got a long ways to go before we kind of get back into any kind of historical norm. That's great. Well, we've got a bunch of questions coming in from the audience. Uh, so first off, let me say thank you and a reminder to all, if you'd like to pop a question in, that would be great. Um, we've actually had a couple of questions talking about uh, the exchange rates. Uh, the first uh, was phrased around, if we had the amount of borrowing that we've had with the two governments, uh, what does that mean for our long-term outlook uh, for both the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar. Uh, and then the second was, what's a, a medium-term outlook for Canadian dollars? So why don't we try and uh, do those two? Maybe I'll start with you, Michael, and then go to you, Margaret. Sure thing. Well, um, I mean, obviously, we had a tremendous amount of borrowing by, by both uh, governments, and if there's one narrative we don't hear at all is, is reining this in at any time soon, uh, regardless of political stripe. So I, I do think that uh, at some point over the medium term, as even Chair Powell has implored, you know, we, we, this is not a sustainable situation, uh, but, but, but don't do anything about it now. Let's wait till the economy is stronger and the, and the recovery has, has a strong footing before we start reining that in. So the bottom line is from a medium term growth perspective, uh, paying the bills, uh, uh, you know, kind of bringing the fiscal ship back, you know, uh, writing that ship is going to be a bit of headwind over medium term growth prospects. It means, uh, you know, uh, uh, Higher taxes than would have been the case, lower spending than would have been the case, therefore subsequently slower growth. Uh, and uh, now the implications for that, uh, for, for, for the exchange rate, obviously depending on, on, on you know, what ultimately is the response from uh, monetary policy in dealing with those medium-term growth uh, prospects, which are a little more restrained than they otherwise would be. I mean, that's ultimately going to drive that currency in terms of, of the Canadian dollar itself. We happen to think that uh, with uh, you know the, the global recovery continuing, the North American recovery continuing, commodity prices continuing to drift stronger, 
that uh, you know we were still looking for the Canadian dollar uh, to to strengthen o- over time, uh, and uh, you know to, to see you know a currency in, in this is a low eighty range, eighty two, eighty three U.S. cents uh, within the next year or two. I, I think that's again that's uh, that remains in the cards. Again, in an environment where uh, the Bank of Canada is is a little bit faster than the Fed, perhaps in terms of uh, uh, you know, uh, normalizing policy, but more importantly, a backdrop pretty solid uh, uh, global commodity markets. Nice try, Michael. Let's go. Five-year five year exchange rate. Come on. You danced all the way through that without a number. Come on. F- f- five, I have to do a five-year exchange rate. I'll, I'll, I'll yep. call it uh, a, a 83 cents. Beautiful. Can't let you off the hook. Margaret, apologies for interrupting. Oh no! I think I think the only thing that I would add, I think Michael nailed it uh, on that question, of course. And the only thing that I would add is we're clearly watching the Bank of Canada's uh, tolerance for uh, higher Canadian dollar, especially you know in the backdrop of the commodity market. So that that's just one factor um, that really could impact the exchange rate. That's great. Um, turning to the audience, uh, we had a great question, which is, uh, what position are financial stocks in right now? And considering inflation and potentially uh, increasing interest rates, how do we think about the valuation of the financial sector? So, Brian, it uh, seems like a layup right to you. Oh, I love, love, love this question. As you know, uh, we've loved financials for a long time. And what's interesting, Dan, about what's happened this year is that at one point, the regional banks in the United States were trading at a premium to the money center banks and clearly what was going on in Canada. And as rates have actually gone lower, net interest margin for the regional banks kind of suffer. That's why we continue to like uh, what we like to call scalable type of assets in financials, money center banks in the United States. Canadian banks in particular, these multi-divisional assets that have the wealth management practice, commercial bank practices, capital markets practices that they can go with the ebbs and flows with respect to a quarterly basis in terms of earnings and and growth. But I think also the brokers and asset managers in the United States are great assets as well. So I continue to believe, based on my, my conversations with clients around the world, that our clients on the institutional side are massively uh, under owning uh, financials, especially especially some of the Canadian banks here, uh, our own bank, BMO TD and RBC with a cross-border relationship with the United States, I think are going to be the best positioned assets. Uh, but then also JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, Bank of America, I think are great assets, Goldman Sachs, uh, BlackRock that I think investors are missing. And then further to my point before as well, Dan, I think these these companies are becoming juggernauts with respect to dividend growth. And remember a year ago, we were worried that the Canadian banks weren't gonna be able to pay their dividends, which was all feared laden. And we wrote a lot about it a year ago and warned people that the banks were over-reserving. And now with, with that over-reserving, they're paying out these great dividends. That's gonna continue. So we think that they're great longer term total return vehicles. That's great. Um, Good question here from the group on uh, on labor markets and what do we think the forward labor uh, employment looks can in the U.S. Michael, maybe start with you. Yeah, yeah sure thing. Uh, I mean the uh, uh, we, we, the recovery in, in in labor markets is is going to lag the recovery in, in the broader economy. In fact, we think GDP has already fully recovered uh, in the U.S. in the second quarter. It'll be the third quarter in Canada. But it's going to be, uh, you know, towards the, the the end of this year that in Canada we get those those jobs back, and sometime say next summer uh, for, uh, for 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 the U.S. So it could take a little bit longer to get a full recovery 
uh, in the labor market. And uh, but there, there are some issues that are beginning to sort of appear within within that. And and uh, what we've seen is labor force participation rates, uh, uh, you know, have yet to return to the kind of uh, levels that we had uh, before the pandemic. A little more close to that level in Canada, but still far from it in the U.S. We know many states are dropped out of some of these support programs from the federal government, labor support programs earlier to try and you know entice uh, more individuals to re-engage uh, in, in in the workforce. Uh, and and you know still early to see whether that has been successful or not. It, it's hints that it's starting to work in some of those key states. But again, you know we'll have to see sort of what happens here. But uh, the, the the other issue too is is how much you know work changes because of the pandemic. We're going to have a probably a, still a, a chunk of activity in that work from home mode. That that's going to be a permanent fixture uh, on the landscape. And, and also you know the persistent problems we're having. And before the pandemic, we had we already had acute labor problems in, in, in many segments of the U.S., particularly the manufacturing sector. And and those things are going to materialize again. And and perhaps the, the number of sectors having those problems. Uh, will expand. You know, another reason why many people in the sort of food service accommodation area are having problems finding workers, those workers have gone elsewhere. Uh, well, that suggests that automation is being a very important role to play going forward in dealing with some of these labor shortages. But we think we'll be back down to pre-pandemic levels of the unemployment rate by uh, the, the end of next year. And of course, again, uh, setting the stage uh, for, for central banks to begin normalizing policy. That's a great one. Uh, Margaret, we had a question for you, uh, which is, what's the impact on, of inflation on the credit markets? And how do you feel sure, about that sure. today? So, yeah, obviously, runaway, runaway inflation uh, is probably the uh, biggest threat to credit spreads. Credit spreads are um, still very, very near post-great uh, financial crisis tights, even after you know, backing up a bit last week. Um, and a runaway type of inflation environment is, is just very, very negative. We, that's not our base case. We actually think that credit spreads will reach new um, great financial crisis lows um, later on this year, uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, so, so we're very, very constructive. Uh, on credit spreads, but definitely, you know, the, the biggest risk is is a runaway inflation type environment, but not in the cards for us. That's great, very clear. Um, we'll go with our last question uh, from the audience, uh, and I think this is what I'll call our diamond hands question. Uh, Brian, would you view a five to ten percent pullback or correction in the market as a buying opportunity for both hands? Uh, if so, uh, what were the three sectors that are most on your shopping list? I'd say both hands and both feet, Dan. Uh, I would say financials, <laughs> technology, uh, and consumer discretionary. Why? Because we're really good at buying stuff in both Canada and the United States. So consumer is going to run and technology, I think, is going to be the leading sector for the next three to five years. Well, let's do a really quick wrap up. Uh, I have one question for each of you. Rapid fire. We'll go Margaret, Michael, and Brian. Uh, what are your reasons for optimism as we look forward? Sure. I, you know, I think the biggest reason for optimism is that rates are still low, which is very, very stimulative to the economy and to the housing market. Uh, so very, very positive. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, the market was tightening for the Fed and the market's no longer tightening for the Fed. So we will be in this accommodative mode for some time. And that is very supportive to the recovery. 
Yeah, right? uh, perhaps I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll jump in there. I mean, in addition to this persistence accommodation, even when we're less accommodative, we're still going to be accommodative. I think it's resiliency you've really got to think about. Uh, you know, we've had three waves uh, of a pandemic and we bounced back uh, each time and, and, uh, and sometimes very quickly. So, so I do think it's that resiliency, how we've changed things. We've done things that normally take months and months and years and years to do. We've done it days and weeks in terms of changing fundamentally operations and, and how we do business. So, so it's, it's, it's that resiliency. I think that's particularly encouraging. So no matter what you know, the, the, the future has in store for us uh, on the various other risks that are out there to the outlook, I, I do think that the, the, what we've shown is we are resilient economies and that is one of our greatest strengths. Well, I'll finish up by saying, uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think Michael's spot on. I I don't think we've set ourselves enough, given ourselves enough slack from a social perspective, personal perspective, or business perspective. I think we're doing great through all of this. And the fundamental backdrop of stocks in both Canada and the United States are are fantastic. But then lastly, this talk of a five to 10% correction and 20% correction, nobody can time the market. The markets are going to be higher a year from now. And I think just the more people talk about corrections, Dan, the more that they do not happen. So we want to stress to people to continue on with your process, stay invested, and keep being a fundamental investor. That's a great roundup, and thank you. Uh, Thanks to Michael, Margaret, and Brian. Uh, Great insights for us in the audience. To the audience that dialed in for LinkedIn Live, great that you share your time with us. Uh, We hope you enjoyed uh, the messages we had today. if you have any questions, please reach out to your BMO Relationship Manager, or you can dial into bmocm.com uh, to get copies of our past podcasts and other uh, materials as we focus on the market. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, and we look forward to connecting soon. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of 
of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.